0: well good morning so we're finishing up first peter it's been a fun ride in case nobody's counting this is message number 26 on first peter and um we're at the close and and basically if you want to sum up everything about first peter what you believe about god and your future shapes how you live today is that true or not It is so very true. All you have to do is look around the world. If if you believe that this life is all that there is, then you are putting everything you can into this life, and anybody that gets in your way is an enemy. However, if you're living knowing, well, let me let me say this. If you live somewhere in the Far East and believe that if you don't live a good life, you'll end up being a bug in the next life or something like that, then you live differently than if you live knowing that you are called to eternal glory in Christ Jesus. That changes everything about the way you live. We see this very clearly in what Peter is, is doing in his conclusion of the, of his book. He In the final section, he's encouraging these believers to remain faithful during suffering. Why can they remain faithful during suffering? Because God is truthful. His word is true and he is trustworthy. And therefore, Peter encourages them to humble themselves under what? The mighty hand of God, and we saw how that—that's talking about the, the the wonderful deliverance in the Exodus and in all through the Old Testament. The mighty hand of God is is highlighting God's awesome power to save and to redeem, and it reflects His power and His glory, and so we don't fight against God in the providences and the circumstances that He brings our way. Rather, we accept them. And, and when we accept them and live through them and look to Jesus, when we get to eternity, the Bible says there is eternal exaltation. Isn't that great? That's what Peter is saying. He, he then goes on to talk about the source of the, the difficulties that, that people have and the source of the difficulties and their suffering, the people he's writing to. Now remember, particularly their suffering is, is being caused by social pressure and the government. And Peter says that the source of all that is the devil himself. He is seeking to destroy the sheep. He's seeking someone to devour. He is powerful. He's cunning. He's ferocious. He's fearful. And we are called to resist those threats. The problem is we don't have the, the ability to do that. We'll be totally devoured by the devil except that God's power works through us. Churches all throughout history have been under persecution and have thrived under persecution. It was as early as the second century um, in in the late second century when Tertullian, the, the church father, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And therefore, when Satan threatens to devour and he roars and he threatens, we are not silent because God is not silent. It's, it's beautiful what God does. It's a daunting task because of the threats of government and the culture around us and the threat of a loss of occupation, homelessness, or in their case, even maybe death is, is something that they can suffer with and and through. But the suffering we learned last week, that sometimes many Christians experience is not from a government entity. We learned last week from Scripture that occasionally God allows the devil to actually touch our own bodies. We learned that last week, didn't we? And we saw all the different ways that Satan can attack us and, and is against us. And so as I preach through this, and we start through this passage, realize that the context is social pressure, political pressure from the Roman government, but it can apply to all areas of our lives where we're not our own enemy. In other words, if you made a mess of your life, you're not suffering because Satan's attacking you. You're suffering because you made a mess of your life. If you're living righteously and God brings something along your way... That's a different story altogether. But the daunting task that we're called to also comes with some wonderful promises. And I want to highlight six promises that we can pull from our passage in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse number 10. Let's read this together. And after you have suffered a little while, promise number one, when you are suffering... Know that suffering is temporary. After you have suffered a little while. This is a theme that he's carried since the beginning of the letter. Hold your finger here and turn to 1 Peter 1, 6. And I realize most of you had phones now probably today. I don't know how you're going to do that. But turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and 6 and notice at the very beginning of his letter, he looks at the, he writes to the people and he says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's the theme. You can look at it as bookends. That's the one bookend. The other bookend is First Peter 5.10. You can turn back there now. After you have suffered a little while. Now what is he saying? Is he saying that our suffering will probably only be for a little while here on earth? And then he's going to remove all suffering here on earth. No, that's not. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that suffering here on earth, no matter how long it is, is a little while compared to eternity. Uh, Paul said that, didn't he? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Eternal Glory. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But suffering is only temporary. Now, if you believe that your future will be unending glory in heaven, then you will view the suffering that you have nowadays as just a little while. Even if it lasts year after year after year. Secondly, promise number two, the suffering of believers are intense sometimes. But God's grace is stronger still. Look at verse number 10 again. After you have suffered a little while, the God of what? All grace. The God of all grace. The unchangeable fact, something that we cannot change, don't want to change, is that God is love. And He loves His children. Fundamental to His character is that He has the sheer amount of His love, the depth of His love, the pureness of His love, and His concern for His children, even in their suffering. If you're suffering right now, God cares for you. And because everything good comes from God, His grace is sufficient for every situation and for, um, and, and every, uh, need that His children have. So believers, believe it or not, the Bible tells us this. Believers are called to suffer. We, we already saw this in 1 Peter. We're called to suffer. Now that's not much of an evangelistic appeal, is it? Hey, I, I want to get, I want to call you to this great new relationship with God where you're going to be called to suffer in this life. Isn't that great? Why don't you get saved? And you can find that out. But um, but we're called to suffer. Now some suffer a greater degree than others, but all Christians suffer somehow, some way, don't we? All of us are suffering. I, I used to, when I was a young man, really struggle with the fact that I grew up in the United States of America, where compared to the whole rest of the world, we're very rich, aren't we? All of us are rich. All of us probably have at least one car for the most part some of us have two um and um and we have a house and we have all these things. And you go around the world and people are living in huts and, and they take public transportation or their, their transportation or their two feet or whatever else. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, okay, I'm in the United States of America. For the most part, our government is for us. Culture is for us. I'm not really suffering compared to all those other people. And, of course, when I was younger, that was like communist Russia or communist China or something like that. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've begun to realize that there are so many ways that we can suffer in this life that we will not suffer in eternity, right? And so all Christians suffer to one degree or another. The unchanging, dependable promise of God is that when, listen, listen, when He calls you to something, He will give you the strength to persevere. Isn't that great? He's he's the God of all greats. This is amazing. That God calls you to something beyond your strength, and then with the unlimited strength of God, the uh, the omnipotence of God, He pours into your life so that you can glorify Him and live through that suffering. The God of all grace. Let's look at that verse again. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace... Who has called you to His eternal glory? Your salvation is a call to eternal glory. This is a, this is a, a phrase uh, that is, is dominant in, in, in this letter in 1 Peter. The word called is a dominant theme. Uh, Peter uses it all the time. What does the word called mean? It doesn't mean like, you know, I'm going to call Bo on the phone. Hey, Bo, I'm going to call Bo. Bo. You know that's not what it means. When God calls an action in your life ensues, He calls you to something, something's going to happen. Look at First uh, Peter chapter two in verse number nine. Look at what he says. He says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who what." Here's the call calling out of darkness into his marvelous light. Something happened there. We call from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light of verse 221 for you for to this, you have been called because Christ suffered after you, leaving you an an example. There's that call to suffering so that you might follow in his steps. And if you keep reading those steps are that we're called to glory. So we're called to suffering. We're called to glory. and Those things happen and will happen. Another verse in chapter three in verse number nine, he says, um, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the, contrary bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing bless those who curse you because you were called to receive a blessing give a blessing these are things these are definite actions and so we have been called to eternal glory in jesus christ it God, it's an effective work of God. He inducts us into a relationship with Him. That calling is not only salvation from the penalty of sin; it's it, it's calling us to eternal glory. Now let that sink in. For some of you, eternal glory be that the Redskins win Super Bowl year after year, or the Nationals, or some, or Yankees. God bless. <laughs> Let us sink in eternal glory. Paul's words, remember his words, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you believe that? Apparently not. (laughs) Let me ask you a question, dear believer. You may be suffering because of your faith. You may be suffering because you live in a sinful world and that in itself causes suffering. And your arms may be heavy. And Satan may be attacking you, trying to scare you. But remember this, you are a child of God who were called and bound for eternal glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. This leads us to the fourth promise. And that is found in verse number 10. Please don't miss this. Don't miss it. Look at what he says. And after you have suffered for a little while, God, the God of all grace, what? Will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. In the original language, that little word, will Himself, is is actually, it's the word altos. It's, it's called an emphatic. In other words, what Peter is getting across to his readers is God is not some distant God off in the distance who's watching down on earth and seeing a whole bunch of people and, oh yeah, I can see that guy suffering himself. Rather, God himself is the one who's going to strengthen you. Is that not amazing? I started praising God and worshiping God when I, when, I, when I just meditated on this fact that God Himself is strengthening. He's, he's, he's there with us, but He's doing more than that that I'll get to in just a minute. God Himself, so think with me, God Himself calls you to salvation. He calls you to suffering. He allows the suffering to come your way. And then when it comes, He doesn't abandon you. He doesn't stand far off. He comes right beside you and He's there with you in your suffering. What a tender phrase that is God Himself. And what is He doing when He comes? He's not like us. Usually when when somebody is suffering, we come and, and we're beside them. And that is very comforting, isn't it, to have somebody beside you? But God's the only one that can really do something about our suffering. And So what does the Bible say? God himself will do what? First, He will restore. Now, I want to tell you the the next four words, if you read them in the verse, it's actually what you would call a rhetorical crescendo. They're basically all saying the same thing, but they are slightly different. And so I'm going to run through these real fast. He will restore you. The word means to put into order. The focus is character. In a world where Christians um, expect to suffer, He will confirm character in them and, and will... Will uh, will restore them to put their character in order. Secondly. And this word and the next word are very similar root words. They they come from the root word that means strength. He will confirm them. The word means to make someone more able. The idea is that God will make you firm in your faith. So He's going to restore your character. He's going to make you firm in your faith, confirm you. Then He's going to strengthen you. This word means to make them more for, firm. It's used of, of Jesus. It's a very interesting word where... In, in in Luke particularly if you if you know Luke you know that there are two major sections of Luke everything up to Luke chapter 9 verse 52 and then from Luke 9:52 the Bible says he set his face to go towards Jerusalem in that word set all through Luke, you see, set. It's that same word, strengthen. It means he was firmly determined to go to Jerusalem and nothing was going to, was going to dissuade him. Have you ever had someone come alongside you and strengthen you in a difficult task? I have friends that do that with me. I'm going through a difficulty as a pastor. Maybe maybe something that or maybe as a father and going through a difficulty and I'll have somebody come beside me, remind me of the promises of God. Remind me of how good God is. Confirm my decision. It may be hard, but but Jared, you're making the right decision. What does that do for me? that strengthens my resolve and that's what God is is doing to to people who are suffering and fourth he will establish you that word means to to lay on a foundation the idea is that God's going to take you in your suffering and he's going to lay you on a firm foundation the foundation of his truth and you will not be moved kind of reminds you of Jesus parable doesn't it uh we should all sing the wise man build his house upon the rock together and the rains came tumbling down, rains came down, the floods came up. Everybody know that song? So I know some people can't, but I'm not going to sing it for you. So, <clears throat> But no matter what comes your way, when God strengthens you, you will have the resolve to obey Him, to keep your faith firmly established is the main thing that it's driving at. Is God's going to strengthen your faith, it's not going to cause you to waver at all. Now, I believe that this applies to all the different kinds of trials that come our way. Every trial that comes your way has passed through the throne of God, and He Himself is walking with us every step of the way, strengthening us. Our faith is giving us a firm foundation that will allow us not to be moved. Remember, if you uh, uh, studied the book of Exodus and, and the Pentateuch, there you see that in the Exodus that God led the children of Israel out. He was with them. We see at the Dead Sea or the Red Sea—I'm sorry—at the Red Sea that He fought for the Israelites, didn't He? He swallowed Israel's army. Then, as they got into the wilderness, He fought through the Israelites all the enemies. But it was this pillar of fire at night and the cloud that covered them in the daytime from. The the hot sun of the desert that stayed with them the whole time no matter who the enemies were, no matter the temptations, no matter the the lack of water sometimes or the lack of food. He provided it all. And God is that rock. God is that pillar of fire. God is that cloud. And He will walk with you and see you to the promised land. What an amazing promise it is. We've gone gone through a little bit of a trial recently. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but I've seen this play out firsthand in the last few weeks where you get the news and it's bad news and you're reeling for a day or two, aren't you? And then you know people are praying and you're praying and you keep rehearsing in your mind the truth of God and you see the truth of God that just settles your heart. Heather was talking to me Thursday evening, and and she told me, she said, you know what the most comforting thing in all this is? She said that before the foundation of the world, God ordained that I would get cancer. And that means that God will sustain me through this no matter what the outcome is, good or bad in the world's eyes. That was God working and sustaining her. And and you guys have all kinds of stories as well. God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you in difficulties. Promise number five. God will triumph over all. I'm sorry, I skipped one, didn't I? Did I skip one? What's going on here? Anyway, God will triumph over all evil. Peter can't help himself. Look at verse number 11. He can't help himself. He, he breaks out with a doxology. What does he say? To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you notice he didn't say glory? He said dominion. He breaks out in a doxology. Have you ever been reading the Bible or reading, reading a book that's, that's fleshing out truth about the Bible, and you just have to stop and you just have to praise God? That's what's going on with Peter here. He he he's encouraging them. He's telling them, and he's meditating on what God does. And he finally just breaks out and says, To him be dominion forever and ever. The God who permits suffering in the lives of his children, even allows the devil to rage at them, you're thinking of Job 1 and 2, is the sovereign God and the God who cares according to 1 Peter 5 7. And dominion belongs to him forever, because he welds a mighty hand on behalf of his people and because of that we should be full of comfort knowing that we are on the side of victory and celebration and no matter what the dominion he's he's poking right in the eye of the roman government saying you think you're strong god's kingdom will last forever and ever and ever glory be to god amen The God who not only planned all this, planned for suffering to come your way, plans for your exaltation, plans for you to leave for you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, is the God to whom the power belongs to fulfill it. Praise be to God. And then finally, promise number six. I drew this, this is more implied. Others triumphed, and so will you. Let's go to the, the conclusion. I had a hard time with the greeting. I'm just I'm just the conclusion here, the greetings and everything. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll admit that. Do I include it or do I not? My conscience bothered me, so I had to think of a, a way to address this and keep it with the rest of everything. Peter's giving final greetings here, and we can see this implied promise. The people who were mentioned... We're currently triumphing through Jesus Christ, and that gives us hope that we can too. Look at it. First of all, we have Silvanus. Sylvanus, right? He's the faithful brother. He's, he says, by Sylvanus, I am writing to you. He's a faithful brother as I regard him. I've written to you briefly. Do you know who Sylvanus is? If you have a, an NIV, you already know. Silas. Now, I'm going to admit something here. I'm not biased against the NIV, but I don't agree with what they did here. The The Greek name is Silvanus and not Silas. Silas is a shortened version of Silvanus. So it's like if your name's Robert, and I've got a friend named Robert, and we call him Bob. Okay? The word is Robert, not Bob, in this text, if, if you know what I mean when I say that. Everybody confused? Okay. <laughs> But it's Silas. What do we know about Silas? Silas faithfully served with Paul and was subject to being thrown in prison. He went with Paul everywhere. His life was in just as much danger as Paul in the Philippian jail. He was in jail with Paul in Philippi silas and what were they doing they were singing at midnight the earthquake this is the same guy so venus. so venus is is um now um with with peter for whatever reason and um there's there's a disagreement as far as what what his role is one one group says that his role is a, a minuensis you might know what that is that's basically somebody who writes down what peter says and um, Silvanus was probably very good at Greek. And there's a group that says that that was what he was doing. And others simply say, no, he wasn't doing that. He simply delivered the letter. Believe whatever you, you, you may, I think that he did both myself. But he, he not only wrote it, but he also delivered it to them. And so Silas is faithful. And we must remain faithful during times of difficulties. And he experienced them. And then the next phrase... Next is a chosen lady. She who is in Babylon, or she is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. In the first verse of this letter, he addresses the church. Look at verse number one of First Peter one. First Peter one1, one, what does he call them? He calls them the elect exiles. The chosen exiles. Now he comes here and he's writing the churches. Now he comes here to the end of the letter and he says, She who is at Babylon, who is chosen, what is he referring to? Once again, he's referring to a whole church. Uh, John did that, Second John. Uh, John did that several times. Several times the church is known as a she because we're the bride of Christ and we're known as the chosen. And Babylon, what's Babylon? Was Babylon a world power during this time? If you know your history, you know that it wasn't. Babylon was a euphemism for Rome. Rome was a dominant world power. And what Peter is basically doing here is saying the church at Rome... Gives you greetings, and he calls it Babylon because Rome was against the church every bit as much as Babylon was against Israel. It's the new Babylon, and so he says, "She who is in Babylon gives you greetings." And so we have here uh, the the faithful, the the chosen believers in Rome. Then we have uh, Mark, John. Mark is a real encouragement to us, right? This is Mark. Most scholars believe this is John Mark. And and we know who John Mark is, I, I think. But let me just remind you, he's been with the church in Jerusalem since the very beginning. In Acts chapter number 12, we have an incident where Peter was in prison in Acts 12 in Jerusalem. Herod learned that the Jews really liked it when he did something to Christians, particularly the apostles. So they thought, well, next person I'll kill is Peter. So he throws Peter in prison. Overnight, Peter's sleeping between two guards, and the angel comes up, kicks him, and says, wake up. Peter finally wakes up. All the doors open, and he walks right out of the prison. And where does he go? Acts chapter 12 says that he goes to a house and the woman who owns the house, Mary, is the mother of John, whose other name is Mark. And many were gathered there together praying. And so Mark is an example of a truth about believers. And let me share what it is. This is why we know about Mark. Everybody knows this about Mark, right? Later on in the second missionary journey... Paul and uh, Paul had given his report to a church at Jerusalem and he and Barnabas are getting ready to go. And Barnabas, who, by the way, is Mark's cousin, says, let's take let's take Mark with us. John Mark with us. And Paul said, no. Why? Because in the middle of a previous missionary trip, he left him and went back. And Paul didn't want to. Now we tend to. Well, I'm not going to. Um, I got to say it now. Okay, we tend to condemn Mark and say, well, he gave up. We we don't know why he left, first of all. Second of all, we don't know why Paul didn't want to take him. Paul may not have written him off completely like a lot of people want to believe it. Maybe that there was a circumstance coming along that Paul knew maybe it wouldn't be best to take it. Either way, it doesn't matter, but he... He abandoned them on a missionary journey. Paul ended up taking Silas, who Peter mentioned, and Barnabas, the the cousin of Mark, took Mark with him. And now Peter is mentioning Mark. What happened? Well, we know that somehow or another Mark was restored later on because Paul spoke very highly of Mark. In Galatians, I think it is. Um, I, I shouldn't even be repeating the books because I'm sure I'm wrong on it. Um, but, uh, he spoke very highly of Mark and, um, oh, it it was Colossians. That's where it was. And second Timothy, I believe he's in prison, he's in prison and he says, Mark sends his greetings and he's speaking very highly of Mark. So Mark was restored. Then one last thing about Mark in case you didn't know uh, about him is that he's the author of the gospel of Mark. Now, this is very important for our, our studies here. Tradition says that Mark wrote the gospel with Peter's help, that Peter told the stories about Jesus to Mark, and Mark wrote them down. Because remember, Peter's in prison in Rome when he writes this book, and Mark's there with him. And so that's, that's how we have the book of Mark, most scholars believe. But Mark is right there with him to the very end. What can we learn? Let me give you two principles. Number one, if you are a believer, you may fall down, but you're going to get right back up. If you're a believer who falls down, you are still useful to God. Get back up. If you're a believer who has fallen and are discouraged, get back up because God has an eternal way to glory waiting for you. Now, if that happens to be a pastor, he doesn't need to fulfill the role of a pastor, but he can still minister somehow. Okay? But you see what I'm saying? Just because you fall doesn't mean you're out of the game. God restores. And and Mark was extremely useful. I mean, he wrote a gospel after abandoning those guys. Don't give up. Let me give you a second truth that's kind of a corollary to that one, and that is this. If you fall and you don't get up, you were never a believer to begin with. Because God has said over and over and over that if He calls you, He will take you to heaven. And people who are called get back up. People who are not called don't. They abandon the church for whatever reason. Mark is a wonderful example of a believer who may have failed somehow. I don't know what happened. And I'm sure that for a while he was discouraged. But with the encouragement, remember what Barnabas' uh, name is? Son of encouragement. He encourages him. And so maybe the job of some of you is to be an encourager. And encourage those whose, whose arms are heavy, whose strength is failing. Encourage them to get back up and to get back in the fight. Regardless, we have considered some tremendously... Comforting truths today. When you suffer from the hand of others, or you go through a trial that's not of your own making, know this. Know this, that God ordained it from the, before the foundation of the world. Know this also. You do not have the strength to endure on your own. You will fail. And that is why God Himself comes right beside you and walks with you and strengthens and confirms and establishes you. And through God's omnipotent strength, in resting in Him, the firm foundation, you will triumph in the end through the power of Jesus Christ. And you will receive eternal glory along with Jesus Christ. What a mighty and faithful God we serve. Amen? take heart do not faint do not fear place your confidence firmly in the only one who will deliver you lord i thank you for the attention of the 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 church today lord i thank you for these wonderful truths the the fact lord that you're with us you are a transcendent god in that you're not like us you're eternal in every attribute and yet you're imminent in that you walk with us through our trials and difficulties. Lord, I don't even know how to adequately convey those truths other than just repeat them over and over. Lord, I pray for our people, people sitting here today who are in the midst of a trial. It could be a family member's difficulty. It could be a job difficulty. It could be health. It could be other kind of pressures and Some of them are due to the fact that they are Christians. I pray that you will strengthen them, that you'll take truth and firmly establish it in their mind so that they have faith to endure. And they'll see, Lord, as we said at the very beginning, how we view God in eternity determines how we live down here. May they live strong, live faithfully. In Christ's name, amen.